I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football. I like football season and all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo here with Sam Monson. We are breaking down whatever you guys want us to break down. It's email day, Wednesday show. It's our extra show here, uh, which isn't really extra anymore, Sam. It's just kind of the norm. It's just the show. Yeah, yeah it's the show. Wednesday show. So we have uh, maybe future Hall of Famer, absolute future Hall mm-hmm. of Famer, Joe Thomas. He's going to be on the show later today. The great Joe Thomas. Current Browns legend. Yeah, like he's, literally, he's in. He's been inducted into the Browns Legends, which is a thing. I'm just, I'm just thankful that Joe has time for the little, little people like us. I know one of uh, as a Browns our, legend, our favorite guests. People ask for Joe back all the time. Well, it's yeah. happening today. Joe is here. outstanding. He'll be on later today, uh, breaking down Thursday Night Football, the Steelers Browns matchup. Yeah, I wonder which way he's going to lean. Yeah, I wonder <laughs> who was he pushing back on. Oh man, did you see the the video of Russ telling everybody yeah. on the sideline uh-huh. to? To yell People, run pass. So, because the the Denver crowd was chanting down the play clock, people were sarcastically responding to those tweets saying, oh, is somebody shouting pass as well? Apparently, yes. Apparently, that was exactly what Russ is looking for. If so, you, you know. could please just shout when the ball's in the air, that'd be great. You know the Denver crowd, when Denver's on defense, is going to start yelling run and pass now. Yeah. Probably as mockery to their quarterback. I mean, that's literally something that, you know, you ask kids to do just hey give yeah. give your defense a heads up when the ball's in the air it's kind of little russ, col- college rah rah <laughs> russ is asking for that to happen in the nfl oh man yeah maybe that's why a lot of his teammates didn't love him years later come I on come on sherm come on sherm we were t- this is off air when we were talking about this right there was a video of video audio something kj wright was talking about the fallout of the the Malcolm Butler Super Bowl interception, they didn't have a DeMarshawn Lynch play, blah, blah. And he was describing it as in, it essentially just drove a wedge into that locker room between, it sounded a lot like defense and offense. Like Anybody that wasn't involved in that play was basically like, what the hell, you didn't hand it to Marshawn? I'm done with this. This is ridiculous. And then, you know, the people on the other side. And it wasn't even like, oh, Russ is terrible. Like, why would you fight for this? It was like, he just became the victim, you know, or the the displaced focus of the ire that they didn't hand the ball off to March on. It became like just sort of focused on Ross and the offense. But it was amazing to hear that like that play was so the ripples of that play probably accelerated the decline of that sort of franchise in the Super Bowl window that they had. Yeah. You think Russ was on the sideline telling Marshawn, like, come on, man, talk it up. It's like what you do in Little League. Talk it up. Cheer for your teammates. Yeah. Say run pass. Uh-huh. Marshawn, like, nope. Just here yeah, I mean, to, to run the ball. Russ was giving him the, uh, the Arthur Smith. It's not fantasy football speech, you know? We're just here to win games. Yeah. You know, it's not about your stats, Marshawn. It's not yeah. about your Super Bowl touchdown. Now you get out there and you yell run pass so Sherman knows what to do. <laughs> and Earl knows to, you know, drop back. You're in a loud stadium. Yeah. Now, granted, if you're on the road, it's quiet when your defense is out there but still 
Well, you know, there's a lot of people on the sideline. You can get them all in shattering pass. It'll help. Can you distinguish between pass and run? You have to say it a little differently. What? I mean, at some point, if you're on the field, helmet on and everything, it just feels like you just say like, ah. Don't you just hear noise? No. You can distinguish between run pass pretty well. The, the, the words run and pass are quite distinct. And you need a different rhythm to it. I, maybe. I'm not 100% convinced you do. Anyway, what else are we talking about here on today's show? Great well, show. First of all, where do people send their emails? Uh, NFL podcast at pff.com. So you, you guys send us the emails, send us tweets at pff underscore Sam, uh, at pff underscore Steve. That one's me. Um, and we can. <laughs> You know, this is when we answer your questions and everything. Yeah. Um, so the other thing today is a little update on the bets. Uh, it occurred to me after two weeks that we might have won a couple of bets already. And we have. We have won two bets so far in our season-long tracking uh, bet whatever exercise with the fans. Good for us. Yeah. Um, we will have the documents. We, I had a, you know, we asked for people to come and help us pretty up the document, the Google Sheet. And uh, a few different people offered help. Uh, I, I kind of gave them all a shot, you know, and I can only pick one. So thank you to everybody that offered. Thank you to everybody that did it. And this is the one that we'll be using. We'll throw it in the uh, description of the podcast and we'll tweet out a link as well from the podcast Twitter account. And, you know, you and I will retweet it as well. But anyway, this is the document, the tracking document. So the bets that we have won already, number one, uh, TyGuy312 on Twitter. So Twitter is off to a bad start. He said the Browns would start the season 4-0, and and he said regardless of the Watson suspension. Yeah. So this was back when that was still kind of up in the air. They're 1-1. One one. They are. They've already lost, so they are not starting at 4-0. Um, and then somebody called Zach Guest said the Bucks would sweep the Saints in 2022. Remember, they were on this, hadn't won in the regular season since 2018. So he said they'll sweep the Saints, 1-0. But he also added that Brady will have an 80-plus PFF grade in both games. He had a 60-something grade against the Saints. So he's halfway there, but that's a loss in this, <laughs> this incredibly house-tilted uh, betting slate that we have here. The people it, were complaining that we only took uh, they were. one-sided and bets. I thought that was a little bit unreasonable given the sort of the premise of the whole thing, which was like we're, if we're particularly strong on something and you think we're completely crazy, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll bet on it. But we're not going to do ones where it's like, okay, yeah, I could see your point, so we're in the middle somewhere. But – Having kind of looked through the list of, you know, what these bets are after, and then after two weeks, what we know and, and how that's changed things, I do think that almost all of them are complete guaranteed wins for us. There's like two or three that could go in a different direction. So what I think we should do is, you know, pick a point in the season, I don't know, week six, whatever, and we'll take a whole new slate of bets from people after six weeks of the season. You know, we get, get a third of the way through and then we're like, all right, New round of bets. Let's have some more that we'll keep track of over the course of the year and see what we get. Yeah. Seem reasonable? I no, I think we definitely should be taking, uh, taking maybe, some more bets and maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll be more lenient. Right. Maybe we'll be a little bit more lenient next time. So, uh, yeah, you can keep those coming in too, your, uh, your bets. But uh, where's that document? It's in the description? It will be in the description of the podcast. There you go. Tyler's throwing it up on the screen there for people watching on YouTube. And I'll have the, we'll get the account, the podcast account to tweet it out. And you and I can uh, retweet it and stuff. All right. Before we get into, we'll get into the most impressive rookies so far through two weeks in the NFL. But first, No House Advantage is changing the game by offering the most dynamic fantasy sports platform available today. Play in pick'em contests versus other people for the shot at winning 250000 plus in cash. 
Download the app, choose a contest, select your player props, earn points for correct picks, and climb the leaderboard for your shot to win big money every day. You can also test your skills versus the house and 20 times your entry if you hit all of your picks. Bet on up to five player prop over-unders and individual individual player matchups across every major sports league, including NFL, NBA, MLB, PGA, MMA, and NASCAR. Sign up now using promo code PFFNFL at nohouseadvantage.com. It's PFFNFL, nohouseadvantage.com. Or you can download the app on the App Store to get a first deposit match up to $25. Make sure to check out No House Advantage today and experience daily fantasy sports redefined because it's not just how you play, but also where you play. You won't want to miss out on this. All right, let's get into some of the most uh, impressive rookies early on here. Who you got? Um, so one, I, I was really impressed by Devin Lloyd this week after being very unimpressed by him in week one. Jaguars linebacker. Yeah, their second first round pick. Second, right? They only had two. Um, obviously Trayvon Walker being the number one overall pick and then Devin Lloyd the linebacker they picked later on but in week one he looked kind of lost and overwhelmed and every single play pre-snap um, Olakun was like getting him to line up in the right place or moving him a gap over or you know every time there was something he was trying to tweak with what was happening and it's like all right Olakun's already a guy that's you know, not necessarily got a track record of playing Pro Bowl level every single year. And now he has to do his own job and make sure the rookies lined up in the right place every snap as well. That's it's kind of a tough ask for the dude in a new environment for the first time. Um, and then week two, the same thing was true. Like I expected, OK, this guy's grading is off the charts. He made a ton of plays. Did, did somehow the light go on? Like, did he just not learn the playbook until now? Like, What happened? But I assumed that when you turned on the tape, that that would have gone you know there wouldn't be any more Olakun lining him up and getting him in the right place and all this kind of stuff it was still happening um but after it happened he would then just go off like a missile to the right place at the right time and make plays so I mean this was this looked a lot like his college tape in terms of very little hesitation very little reading and reacting just immediate uh diagnosis of the play and moving to the right place had a couple of uh, pass breakups was able to fly to the football had an interception as well on a tip pass but he just looked really good and you know we've talked a lot about how hard it is for linebackers to hit the ground running in today's NFL but that's that's the game that like Jamin Davis hasn't had so far you know across a year and two games worth I have another linebacker to mention yeah so Devin Lloyd um remember he didn't play much during the preseason, right? I mean, he was... Yeah, he was injured. Right, so he was banged up. So that's why he is just just getting getting out there, getting some reps. Um, Devin Lloyd's a first-rounder, but Malcolm Rodriguez from the Detroit Lions, a sixth-rounder, uh, pick number 188 in the draft. He's our highest-graded rookie linebacker so far. 76.7 through two games, two grades in the green. Solid, outstanding game last week against Washington in the run game. Uh, taking on blocks, shedding blocks, made a ton of stops in and around the line of scrimmage. Rodriguez was a guy who um, we had one of our friends from the Detroit Lions up here recently for uh, for a party. Mm. We'll just say for a party um, for Neil Hornsby. And uh, he was like, man, Malcolm Rodriguez. He was just telling us it was end of training camp preseason. He's like, Malcolm Rodriguez could be a find. And there was a lot of training camp buzz, both internally with the Lions and, of course, with um, – just the media and everything there and he's looked good so far uh oklahoma state sixth rounder and um a part of the Lions' success early on grading well like i said run game uh, a couple pressures as a pass rusher not as great in coverage the other day missed a couple tackles but 
if you could find a starter in the sixth round love that and he's been he's been pretty good there seems to be quite a lot of low round guys this year that have made immediate impacts or higher up on depth charts than people were expecting them to be um you know the, the bills yeah the, the bills, bills rookies bills draft kair elam first round corner like oh he's going to start opposite tredavious white he'll have a great opportunity given the departure of Levi Wallace and the, the way the Bills play defense, and he's, he's not even starting on the depth chart. Got a ton of snaps uh, on Monday night because of the, the horrible injury, uh, which thankfully seems to have worked out okay in terms of there doesn't appear to be any anything major so far. He's passed all tests and no spinal damage and released on his own recognizance for more tests and blah, blah, but that looks like a bullet dodged um, after a couple of days. Dane Jackson? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Christian Benford started on that end there. He came out of Villanova. He had a highest coverage grade among FCS players last really? year. But he's been he's been uh, the starter over there. Yeah, and then another the um, lower draft pick at, at corner is Martin Emerson, the yeah. corner um, for the Cleveland Browns. He was, what, a third-round pick um, who had some really interesting college tape. He was kind of one. He was a... One of my guys, he was like a non-model my guy. Non Liked him. Do you, does those exist still? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I have deferred to the model more than anything. Yeah. But uh, Emerson was a guy where I more liked his tape and a little bit of his production, but he did, I don't think he was uh, a model checkbox. I don't think. I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to check. His, he, was he one of those guys whose measurables stank? I can look that up. Yeah, but Emerson, I mean... He he had he did play some good ball at uh, at Mississippi State. You no, know, he, his measurables. Well, depending on the ones you look at, so size was very good. Everything else less so. Yeah, but he had he started the preseason right away. Remember he had that pick six. Yeah, early in the took preseason the game, took the ball away from it. And so he just continues to impress, much like a Malcolm Rodriguez. Two grades in the green for Martin Emerson here through two weeks. Yeah, 40, 40 yard dash of four five two at a corner, not great. Um, vertical leap of 32 inches, which as a corner is... That's what I used fit. to do. I was a 32. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not what you want to see from your cornerback. 32 is good for, for a guy 6'2", that... 270. 6'10", 270. Sure. It's not good for a corner, though. No, it's not. Um, so, yeah, he, his measurables weren't great. But he had some intriguing college tape and so far has, has looked very good for the Browns. Um, anyone else rookie-wise? Are uh, we going to wait on the Aiden Hutchinson discussion? Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. I, I want to discuss Trayvon Walker quickly because okay. he doesn't have the win rate. Um, so through two weeks, we've seen Trayvon Walker uh, pick off a pass, which was very impressive in week one. Mm -hmm. Just read a pass. I never should have picked it off, but he did. Very impressive play. Last week had a few pressures. Um, was really good in the run game last week uh, violent hands i mean he had good run grades at georgia the question for walker was putting it together as a pass rusher i am more of a believer in trayvon walker now than i was in april i'll just say that yeah. i do i do believe in what i've seen the violent hands um yeah i, th I think improved technique as a pass rusher like i think he can get there is is basically the point um and we do have the recent history of rashawn gary and Daniel Hunter. I know those were the guys that we were kind of comping him to. Like, hey, these guys are outliers. Walker seems to have the 
I think his trend line similar to those guys. So I'm, I'm impressed with Trayvon Walker so far with the Jags. He's got an okay grade. He's fine. Um, made a couple of those splash plays, but I think he's I think he's on his way, and he was very good against the run last week against the Colts. I mean, I think this is the most likely outcome of the whole, you know, what will Trayvon Walker be is right now he's a guy who flashes incredible athleticism and ability, but it's way too inconsistent to sort of say, oh, this guy's a great player. He's a dominant force, whatever. It's like every... Two or three times in a game, you're seeing a play that makes you go, oh. But, you know, two or three times in a game is not enough if you're going to play 60 snaps on the defensive line or whatever. You know, you need to you need to see a lot more of those. You need to up that frequency. And that probably will come the longer he plays. You know, generally speaking, guys are going to get better from this starting point. But that's probably, I think, the most likely outcome of what he was going to be, which is you know he's not going to stink outright he's not just gonna be a disaster because he's too athletic he's i think he was way i mean he would get compared to certain guys that were athletic busts in the past like vernon yeah. golson right was one who was had a crazy combine vernon golson was a disaster of a player at the nfl and you're like well what maybe he's the next vernon golson but again like even guys like vernon golson as impressive a combine or a measurable as he had there's two or three things that never matched up with Trayvon Walker. So Golson, I think, had incredible straight line bursts, but change of direction numbers were terrible. Doesn't apply to Walker. Incredible burst and change of direction. Like that, that's the thing with him as opposed to any of these guys that he was being compared with is each one that didn't work out, you can point to one thing that they don't have in the makeup that's usually quite important and say, yeah, but doesn't have that. Walker has all of it. So doesn't directly apply to any of these guys that washed out doesn't mean he won't but it means that the chances are just simply but, by being that freaky but the he's part, gonna have a baseline that's higher than some of those guys the Trayvon Walker discussion though is the fact that because he went number one overall the comparisons are now in a different realm they're in a different world right we all agreed Trayvon Walker if we if if he was picked 15 was much more reasonable uh you know i'll bet on this athletic upside at pick 15 when you're pick number one you pretty much have to produce like the guys that are have a 20 20 percent win rate in the nfl right now miles garrett the boses micah parsons like those when you pick number one overall parsons is now a steal at 10 mm. where he went but garrett and the boses were number one picks wire to wire coming out of college right we knew they were going to be in that mix and the only thing that would drop them down was quarterbacks and that's what they were, and that's how they've played at the NFL level. We'll see if Chase Young can get there. That's the only problem with Trayvon Walker. And the argument against picking him number one was, even if he becomes Daniil Hunter, would you ever go back and say, Daniil Hunter, very good NFL player, made a big money in a second contract, would you ever take him number one overall in a redraft? That's uh, the only... I mean, maybe if he stayed healthy. Maybe, but I don't know. That's, that's the only pushback. For me, it's not Trayvon Walker is going to become Vernon Golston. It's, is he going to produce, is Golson? Golston, yeah. Is he going to produce at Bosa, Miles Garrett level? But Trayvon Walker, more of a believer now than I was in April. I'll say that. Yeah. Um, I've been really impressed by Sauce Gardner as well, generally. I know he gave up, you know, a touchdown last week um, in a coverage bust, but he's looked really good right out of the gate. Uh, more impressive, I think, than Stingley so far. Obviously, two weeks, you know, doesn't mean anything, but... I've been impressed by how well he's played. And then the other guy on my uh, two guys, I thought Donald Parham looked really good at guard, less so at center when the Raiders had to reshuffle. I think if they had the injury, you know, if everybody's healthy, I think Parham should be their starting right guard 
I think that would upgrade that offensive line. That's taking steps in the right direction, or even back toward average for them. No, no, Parham's a model guy. He's perfect. And um, if if his center grade is going to ruin the model, I'm going to be upset. You know, but yeah, Parham as a as a guard, starting guard, I think we liked him there. Um, I thought the teams that needed a guard, like the the Rams, were like all in on grabbing a guard at pick 101 or whatever it was. I thought Parham would have been their perfect fit there. He wasn't available. I think he was picked you know, 15 picks before that, whatever it was. But, yeah, he's been off to uh, to a good start at his regular position. And then Dominique Robinson for the Chicago Bears. Miami of Ohio. Yeah. Um, Interesting profile. Former receiver. That's just, uh, you know, developed. Very athletic. A couple of sacks in the opener against San Francisco. Wasn't as good against Green Bay. Only had one pressure in that game. But he's had a lot of buzz through training camp and stuff as well. And, you know, he's looked pretty good i think through two weeks how about those receivers fifth round in pick. general drake london's the highest graded rookie receiver yeah, I mean, every year it's receiving rookies look impressive so we are getting to that point though right we do we do say this every year and we've questioned whether or not it's just the nature of the position right when you're evaluating receivers it's easy to see the positives hey i like a lot of these things but these guys have produced mm. when they've gotten to the nfl this is these guys as in the the last th- three or four receiving classes have all produced and even though we spent all offseason at least i did talking about tyree kill and aj brown and Devonte adams and in the the alpha number one moving to new teams and how important that is we are getting to the saturation point around the nfl it, it's, it's been feeling that way but if we have this another influx of drake london Traylon burks garrett wilson Jahan dotson uh chris Olave, all these guys who am i missing but we have this influx of these guys that are now instantly pretty good twos and threes with the potential to be ones i don't know it's you, you still need the alpha ones but it's it's easier to round out your receiving well the other right thing now. is um you know this was a year that people didn't necessarily love the receivers this year it's like oh there's no jamar chase in this group or justin jefferson or whatever you know it's like this maybe is a step back from the last couple of years well, if this is what happens in the step back, like if this is the average year for receivers and you're still looking at the first round after a couple of weeks and like all of them are good, yeah, then that's a pretty good indication that the, like the draft is a really good place to be targeting wide receivers. If you need receiver help, yeah, you can go and spend $30 million in a boatload of draft picks and get Tyreek Hill and he will transform your offense. But for, the, you know, for, for that cost... You could take multiple swings in the first round and maybe get two really good wide receivers. And I guess it depends, you know, what you need from your from the addition. If you're in a team if you're a team that has nothing at receiver, maybe you want to go and platoon and try and get two or three guys that are rookies and can all come in and make a, an impact from their rookie deal. But if you're a guy that has like, you know, your receiver core is passable, but it doesn't have any number one alpha, then sure, you're you're gonna target an AJ Brown or a Tyreek Hill or whatever. So it's early on. We've only seen a couple weeks of these guys, but there is this nice combination of some late rounders, some high expectation first rounders playing well so far through a couple weeks. Don't forget, PFF now has an app featuring industry-leading fantasy football advice, PFF's exclusive betting dashboards, the latest premium football analysis, all in the palm of your hand. I would also read all of Sam's articles on there. Mm -hmm. I like to read Sam's articles. I share them to all my friends. Look what Sam wrote this week. What an idiot. Well, you say that, and yet I am... Not quite, but almost undefeated in, in bets this year. After oh, yeah. two weeks, I'm 7-1 and one on bets that have been, like, publicly, you know, pushed. And, and we're doing a lot with, like, internal metrics and stuff like that, right? Like, what's, we want Sam. We want Sam to be the most shared writer. 
because I've had to take a step back from the from the writing game right now. But we want Sam to be the most shared writer. Oh, can we? Okay, so go get the PFF app, read mm-hmm. Sam, share it with all your friends. Can we announce what you told me yesterday? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Probably best not to yet. Okay. Uh, Wait till it's... Right, in stone. Okay. Set. Locked What in. if I screw you over because I'm a little jealous? <laughs> well, then that might affect our podcast relationship. It know? might. It might. Sam might have this great opportunity <laughs> that I don't, that I, I won't have. Not a like like a job or a it's not a job. Yeah, it's not yeah. that great. It's, I mean, not, it's yeah. just it's kind of cool. that exciting. It's kind of cool. You can throw it on a resume though. That's true. Yeah, yeah. You throw it on a resume. You're not a three time Hall of Famer though. I'm not like I am. No, I am in fact in no Halls of Fame. You are Hall in, of Fames. You're in the PFF Hall of Fame, man. Oh, that's true. You're yeah. in one. Yeah, I forgot that existed. I counted that as one of my threes. <laughs> one of my three. <laughs> I'm in PFF. Yeah. North Reading mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. soon to be UMass Lowell. Soon to be. Yeah. Feels yeah. like I should be in some kind of IAFL Hall of Fame. I don't think one exists, though. Maybe I have you to should, set one up and put myself in. You should in. spool that up. Yeah. And first member. For inaugural member, me. And you're the only voter? All right. Yeah, yeah. Congrats. Exactly. We'll, we'll have a Perfect. ceremony here. Um, speaking of real Hall of Fames, though, Halls of Fame. Perfect. Look at uh, you segue in. Thank you. They've just announced the, the new nominations for this year's Hall of Fame, the real one, you know, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Canton, up the road there. Um, so I think we should do a little, we've never done this before, actually, on, on the podcast. We should do a little yay or nay. You know, are you in or out on the first year guys? Because there's like 125, you know, guys that have been nominated this year. So we're not going to go through all of them. But the first year guys is actually a really strong class. It is. Um, so I just want to run through them and let's go yay or nay on those guys. So number one, easy one, easy one to start with. And not just because he's on the podcast. Because he's on later. Later. Joe Thomas. In. Offensive tackle. Put him Cleveland in. Browns. Put him in. I think Joe Thomas absolutely goes to the Hall of Fame. Is he going to be the first offensive line Hall of Famer with a full career of grades? He Probably. was drafted in 07, much yeah. like Revis. Full career of so. PFF grades. Who are the most recent ones that have gone in? Orlando Pace. Don't have a full career for him, right? I don't think we, have, we might have Baselli. one year of his. Baselli, we have nothing. Because he played like three years. End. Yeah, we're, Ogden, we've got... Two yeah, like years. Two years. Oh, yeah. six, oh, oh, maybe three years, but he was incredible in yes. those years at the end of his career. He, him, the three highest PFF grades for an offensive tackle over a season are Trent Williams last year, one of the tail end seasons of Jonathan Ogden's career, and Joe Thomas. Like, that's Pretty the good. company. Pretty good. So Joe Thomas, yes. absolutely in. Darrell Revis. In. Yes. Revis, 09 Revis is still the greatest single season of cornerback play that yeah. PFF has seen. He's the best corner of his generation. Yes. Better than Sherm. I agree. And, you know, we can debate all the time about what the, the zone versus man coverage stuff and what that allows you to do and, you know, the impact that it has and blah, blah, blah. But when you watch what the Jets were doing on defense when they had Revis Island and it was literally take that guy, go over there. Nobody else will be within 25 yards of you. Have at it. And quarterbacks still tried to target him. That was the cool thing, well, right? Because tra- he went and he followed the number one right wide receiver wherever he went. And so you had to. At the time, right, we were just starting as PFF. Um, football Outsiders was doing tracking. And at the time, Namdi Asamwa was playing football. Mm-hmm. And I think Football I mean, Football Outsiders started before PFF. Namdi was, like, never getting targeted by their metrics. Yeah. And then our metrics started to match that as well. In a year, we had, like, 26 targets or something stupid. Yeah. But there wasn't, like, there weren't people breaking down the All-22 as much as they are right now. People weren't going snap by snap on Namdi 
really seen what was going on. He was just he had this he was more like reputation based. The fact that Rivas was covering the number ones well, yeah. and getting targeted, and we saw that he was like they were two for ten targeting Randy Moss and like one for eight targeting Steve Smith and all this stuff in certain games was nuts. There were a few things with Namdi. There was the reputation thing. There was the fact that he played right cornerback the entire time, which yeah. I, I don't know. I haven't checked this actually recently, but at the time, remember we act like we're talking about the 1950s, but it's a very kind of was right. It's a very serious point that football in the early 2000s and football now is not the same game. It is dramatically different in a lot of different ways. And at the time, there was a there was a right hand bias to where the the ball the, where quarterbacks would target. Like the left corner would be targeted more than right corner because yep. most quarterbacks in the NFL were right-handed and they automatically were looking at that side of the field more. And at that point, the only quarterback that did not have a right-hand bias in his target distribution was Peyton Manning, you know, which tracks with that whole, that dude was just some sort of mechanical, like, computer wizard. Everything that you think could be influenced, you know, he wasn't influenced by it. So anyway... One, Namdi essentially hid on the easier side of the field and didn't get as many targets naturally. Two, generally speaking, the corners opposite Namdi Mao were awful. So it's like, well, why would you target that guy when you can just line your best receiver over there on the other side and go nuts? So it made sense. But what, what was amazing about Rivas is even corners that tracked receivers didn't follow them into the slot. They would go left or right, and then when he went into the slot, it was somebody else's problem. Because um, the slot's a different position, essentially. Rivas tracked a number one wide receiver wherever he went. If you moved your guy into the slot, Rivas would go with him. If you moved him left to right, Rivas would go with him. So you were left with the choice of going into this game, do I acknowledge that Andre Johnson is simply not going to be a part of this game, or do I say, I, okay, I'm going to have to throw the ball at Rivas 10 times because Andre Johnson's over there. Like it, That's what I got to do. So that was, again, part of his amazing legacy is that he forced you despite the amazing coverage, to still test him in a way that doesn't happen for most corners. Yeah, I think that's a pretty easy slam dunk for Joe Thomas, yep. Darrell Rebus, both from the class of 2007. I want to get into the rest in a minute, but first, the NFL action is in full swing here at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. We're talking touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win, and you get $200 in free bets if they do. If that's not enough, everyone can boost their winnings with DraftKings stepped up same game parlays. Right now, for every leg you can you add, you can boost your winnings up to 100%. With payouts bigger than ever, why bet on football anywhere else? To make things even sweeter, you can throw down on stepped up same game parlays once per game game day. Once per game day. I got to read this better. Mm-hmm. All season long. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets if your team wins when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's po- it's code PFF, only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum major and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. All right, who else do we have for first time? So those are the two slam dunks. Yeah. Then I think it starts to get more interesting. Dwight Freeney. He's a slam dunk. Yes. You think? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I don't want to... He's the best pass rusher of his generation. Yes. I mean, from 03 was his draft? 0203. Something like that. I think yeah. it was 03. I'll look him up. He was, con- yeah, contemporary with Brian McKinney, which was 03, right? So from from then... Because when you get into, like, 2011, that's when Von Miller shows up. That's when J.J. Yeah. Watt shows up. Well, this is back when generations were, like, a decade, you know, before now, where it's going to last 25 years with players still in the NFL. 
So Freeney, I'm looking him up on our uh, on my PFF IQ page, oh, yeah. and IQ defaults to the latest team for a player. Arizona oh. Cardinals legend? No, no. Who did he play after the Cardinals? I don't think he ever played a snap for them, but he must have signed there at some point. Uh, oh no, he did play some snaps there. Wow. Texans? No. I'm out. Who did he play for? Detroit Legends. No. Uh, Detroit Lions legend, Dwight Freeney. Dwight Freeney played for the Lions? In 2017, he played one, two, three, five games. Wow. For the Detroit Lions. McKinney was 0-2. Was Freeney also 0-2? Uh, Freeney was 0-2. So yeah, pick number 11, 2002. We have his grades back to 06. Mm-hmm. Um, 06 was their Super Bowl year. He was the fifth most valuable based off of war. But we're talking pass rush grades, 90, 84, 90, 82, 86. I mean... He was just good. He was also one of those guys that, you know, so his spin move is one of those things that's going to go down in the annals of pro football history as a legendary thing. You know, uh, like um, Deacon Jones' head slap. You know, these moves that specific pass, that Reggie White's club move, or hump move, rather. um, Freeney spin moves as good as anything that's ever been deployed in a football field to rush the passer. It It would wreck people consistently it's not like people didn't know it was coming like late in his career he's still destroying people like andrew whitworth who's still playing at like an all-pro level with the inside spin whilst playing for the cardinals you know late career freeney his that i think has value the fact that you can say this guy had a thing that nobody else could replicate and is the best that's ever been done at that that that's hall of fame worthy there's there's also a scheme element and i'm gonna i'm gonna push back against this very argument with one of the guys later later (laughs) But Freeney was like the prototype for the the scheme that the Colts wanted to run, which is from Tony Dungy, from that whole cover two era, where it was like, just get, remember, it's him and uh, Rasheen Mathis on, uh, not Rasheen, uh, Robert Mathis on the other side, uh, Raheem Brock. They had all these undersized edges. They were like, don't you know, play the run on the way to the quarterback, but you're going to get the quarterback. And we don't care how well you play the run. And, and Freeney and Mathis were perfect at that. They were the prototypes for those for that type of offense and executed it extremely well. I think Freeney is a hall of famer so that's three yeah i think he should be as well um chris jones uh chris johnson johnson jones chris johnson typed him in as cj2k i know yeah yeah confused myself no no he's enough despite the fact that he's one of however many people now that have hit 2,000 rushing yards in a single season yeah and people like you won't care because other people are going to start doing it all the time with 17 game schedule (laughs) it's going to happen a lot now it's going to happen maybe not with uh, like four bell cow running backs which is good that's true maybe maybe it won't so i say no to um Chris Johnson. Yeah, I, I agree. I think his peak was too short, was which is my biggest problem with it, I think. Um, where he where he has an argument is the sort of direct comps to Terrell Davis, though. Because, you know, the, the Hall of Fame has set some interesting precedents with who they've let in, which I think makes some of these arguments more difficult to shoot down than they would have been a few years ago. Maybe. I just... I also think... You have to. Uh, Curtis Martin is in, which still like, I know doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I don't like that. Curtis Martin was like, a Curtis sl- Martin is slightly like, better. Frank Gore. Yeah, Curtis Martin is original Frank Gore with some you know some turbo boost with like seven fewer years. Yeah, than Gore. Um, I yeah I don't love the Curtis Martin thing. I will say about Chris Johnson is he is one of four people I can think of off the top of my head that were so damn fast that it changed things. Like, completely, you know? Him and Jamal Charles of that. See, I don't think Jamal Charles had that. He had a different—his blazing speed wasn't the thing that made him so good. But 
people that everybody's fast in the NFL by and large. So people that are fast to the point where it makes NFL players look stupid are very, very rare. And you see it in terms of angles from from defenders because you can't rewire your brain in the middle of a game to that kind of thing. You've been used to this guy's running, I'm running, this is the angle it takes. It's, a, it's an internal subconscious thing. You don't think about it because you've just been doing it for so many years, it's ingrained. So when a guy comes along and they're so much faster than everybody else that it fundamentally alters the angle you have to take by a noticeable margin, you can't fix that on the fly. Like Your brain is not capable of processing that during the course of a game. So the only outcome is you just end up looking like an idiot because you run to a spot two yards to the left of where you should have been running. And by the time you get there, Johnson's away off in the distance. So the four players I can think of that have done that in, in a long time, Chris Johnson was one of them. He would get through holes that shouldn't have been there because his speed was so fast, it broke angles. Randy Moss did this. Um, I think Tyreek Hill does this now. For sure. And Bob Hayes, who was so fast that they had to, like, invent zone coverage to stop <laughs> Bob Hayes. I thought Dalvin had elements of this, but it, it's not as consistent as no. Chris Johnson. It's not that level of speed. So, we're so no that's on, fair. You're, we're both, no you're, you're still no on, uh, on Chris Johnson. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a notable thing. I think that's laudable, but it's not Hall of Fame worthy. It's, it's not the Hall of Very Good. No, if you've, I, know if, I don't know if you've heard that before. It's not the Hall of Very Damn Fast, Chris. No. I'm afraid you're just not in. <laughs> Is Patrick Willis in, by the way? I think so, yeah. He okay. definitely got in, right? Because his running mate, Navarro No, no, Bowman. he's not. Okay, hang on. We'll get to that in a minute. So, Navarro. Oh, he's in the second list. Okay, yeah, Navarro, Navarro Bowman. Bowman. Next up. All right. Remind people, who is Navarro Bowman? He was the guy the that came Z along right after Patrick Willis. Who yeah. was the, at one point, the 49ers playing a 3-4 had inside linebackers of Patrick Willis and Navarro Bowman, and they were both all pros. There was a point where they probably were the two best linebackers in the NFL. Yeah. Top, they also, two, top three to five at I least. remember they went from Takeo Spikes and Patrick Willis to then Patrick True. Willis and Navarro Bowman. Like they had a, And then they got... Chris Borland out of nowhere who played like one year like a pro bowler and then just hung him up. Yeah, there like, was an incredible run of inside backers yeah. in, uh, in San Francisco and early retirements, including Patrick Willis, who's mm -hmm. on our list later. Um, Navarro Bowman, Hall very good. I tend to agree. He's I very good. That, I was looking up his stats. I mean, he's really got a three-year run. I think he's close. Like he's, he's the 3-4 inside backer version of Tony Baselli. He was so good. Three good years. For a while. Um... So we're no on him. We'll get to we'll get yeah. to Patrick Willis later. James Harrison. Um, so my first instinct was no. I'm trying to be I'm trying to be like hard line, line. in the sand here. Mm -hmm. I did look up Harrison's stats, and he was drafted. I mean, he was undrafted, but in '02. Yeah. Um, so we have his his data back to '06. Harrison was as good as Dwight Freeney as far as overall impact. Better all around player. Completely different scheme in Pittsburgh and all that stuff. For as long, I would say, for James Harris. He's also got, you know, with the Eli Manning argument of well, your entire your entire Hall of Fame resume is built off two Super Bowl runs. I mean, Harrison has one of the most iconic plays in Super Bowl history of right. intercepting Kurt Warner and the Cardinals on his own goal line and then making yeah. it all the way back to the other goal line. Right. Surely. But like that was that that literally changed the outcome of that game. Yeah. So I mean Harrison um I do have it pulled up here. War rankings, oh seven, third third eighth first 12th 15th 11th so he was like a top 15 player at his position for about five years yeah and a top three to five player at his position for four years his peak was That's he was really pretty good, good at his peak i also think there's something i don't even know if this is a good argument for hall of fame or anything but 
I love seeing a guy where all of a sudden they get a shot to do something totally different and it turns out they're really good at that as well and you kind of get the you get left with the impression that it almost doesn't matter what you ask that guy to do he's just a really good football player or athlete or whatever remember when he signed for the Bengals and they decided to move him to an off the ball like strong side linebacker 13 he became a Bengal yeah so they decided no we're going to take this this guy that's been like the pro not a prototype but been a proven dominant force as a 3-4 outside linebacker we're going to ask him to be a 4-3 strong side linebacker back when that was still a thing and he just like wrecked house as a run defender like he became Bart Scott as a 4-3 Sam linebacker like completely fish out of water but just decided to hell with it I'm going to go dominate this one specific area and was really good at doing that. Yep. And then he finally, you know, got back to a normal position for him. And even in Pittsburgh, remember, they always had the two edge rushers, but they would drop them into coverage. They still do. They drop mm. them into coverage back and then, especially. A ton. So he would drop into coverage 250-plus times per year, one time That's 329. So one of the best pass rushers in the NFL, losing all of those pure pass rush yeah. opportunities to go play in coverage, never had a bad coverage grade either. Right, the responsibility out there isn't crazy, but he just you know he played in space pretty well. So, I think James Harrison's a yes. Patriots legend, by the way. That's who he Patriots. finished his career with. I forgot that. Two thousand seven. Right. You talked me into that. I think I'm buying James right. Harrison Hall of Fame case. Jerry Evans, one of the best guards of his generation for the New Orleans Saints. I don't think so. I wouldn't put Jerry. Evans my guard. In Hall of Fame. It's my guard bias. I like. Look, I think offensive linemen deserve to be recognized but i'm not quite sure he has a hall of fame case like among guards right now i'm not sure he's the best guard that the saints had in that period of the pff era evan mathis will say is iffy i don't i don't know if he was just a great scheme fit everywhere he was <laughs> and whatever he his, graded his, well for us. Uh, zach martin is a hall of fame guard yes in the pff era logan marshall mankins. yonda marshall uh, logan mankins probably maybe logan mankins yeah that's three quentin nelson could get there yeah it's early i think that might be it guards in the pff era off the top yeah, of my head i'm not buying jerry evans I, carl nicks might have been a better player in Ooh, the same team yeah. like i no. cam chancellor so this is where i'm pushing back on my own argument like mm-hmm. cam chancellor is the prototype in the scheme that every team, team tried to team. replicate in every team that tried to replicate it didn't succeed did not do very well yeah. gus bradley still having some level of success but as long as he doesn't face the chiefs yes this week mm. um oh man yeah gus bradley's going up against the chiefs this week it's going to be a yeah we're gonna play we're gonna play our single high in the latest muscle we're gonna play our single high Colts. against the chiefs uh cam chancellor I, I i think i'm saying no i just don't he was very good he was very good and the prototype in that scheme the enforcer at strong safety he was um remember he came out of virginia tech at like 225 pounds or whatever he was and people actually wanted him as a linebacker he actually may have played some linebacker at virginia tech virginia tech if i remember correctly but he's a strong safety for the seattle seahawks fourth rounder you know didn't have he wasn't the prototype for the nfl at that time but he was he was what seattle wanted in that when they're drawn up scheme so that was great he may have uh, set the tone in that Broncos game, right? You know, yeah. patrolling the middle and scaring Wes Welker and whoever else they had over there. But I just, I don't think I'd put Cam into the Hall of Fame. I don't think I would either. His strongest argument, I think, is that Steve Atwater just went in. So if you're looking, again, precedent and looking at guys that kind of paved the way, you know, and sometimes the Hall of Fame, I think you look at it as there's a backlog at this position and you can't put this guy in before you put this guy in. 
Well, Atwater just went in, and if you're looking at the sort of closest Cam Chancellor analog throughout history, I think Steve Atwater is probably that guy. So that at least is an argument that you can put a player like that in the Hall of Fame. I think I'd lean with you, though, and say, look, my Hall of Fame has, has more has stricter entry requirements, and I'm not sure Chancellor yeah. makes it. That's it. So he actually was drafted in the fifth round. Um, again, I think the biggest argument for Chancellor is that every time a big, free, strong safety comes out, teams are like, oh, this will be the next Cam Chancellor. Just like every team's looking for the next Earl Thomas, and it never works. You can't replicate what Cam Chancellor did. He also only played eight years, and he's very good. Very good player. Yeah. Most valuable safety in the league in 2013, using PFF Ward, the year that the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. I also think it's difficult trying to parse out who gets the credit for that defense. You know, it's nobody that re- tried to replicate that defense could make it work. And was that because they couldn't find their Ch- Cam Chancellor? Was it because they couldn't find their Earl Thomas? Was it because they couldn't find their Richard Sherman? Or was it the fact that you need all three of those guys at the same time for this thing to work? And Bobby Wagner. Right, yeah. And yeah. good and, pass rushers. And pass rushers, Cliff Averill. You know, they, they yes. had a ton of guys. So I think that's very difficult. I think each one of those guys is going to get that argument at some point. It's like, well, yeah. he's the guy that made it tick. You know, nobody else had one of those, so nobody else made it work. So, yeah, well, Nobody else had any of that. That's why it didn't work. Unfortunately for Cam Chancellor, if you're looking at that group, though, I think you're going to say Sherman Hall of Fame, Earl Hall of Fame, Bobby Wagner Hall of Fame, and you're going to say, well, Cam Chancellor, prototype, strong safety, very, very good, but I think he's going to miss out. Yeah, I would I would say that from my personal intuition, I would suggest that in a higher, if you were ranking the hierarchy of which guy was most important to making that defense function, it's either Earl or Richard Sherman, and I'm not 100% sure which, then it's a gap, and then it's either Bobby Wagner or Cam Chancellor. He's either the third or fourth most important part of that thing, which makes it difficult to sort of use as a reason to get him in. And oh, by the way, having Michael Bennett, Cliff Averill, and uh, Frank Clark weaving in there at times too, but like having pass rushers to get after the quarterback was helpful. The final first year eligible, Shane Leckler, punter punt god before oh, punt god it. was punt god i don't know i also i haven't i don't do i don't look i have everybody's got weaknesses my weakness is any level of special teams research well, this will, i thought we throw this in there for our, uh, our punting friend that likes the punt this i'll let him vote well i imagine he put him in <coughs> oh, not again you yeah but he guy. can't if you're a punting guru you can't just put in every punter no you I, have to have standards i assume our punting friend that always tells us to talk more about punting. I assume he has standards, and he's going to either hear Shane Leckler's name and say, yes, that's my god, that's our guy, or uh, no way, we have others that we're missing here. Yeah. I mean, I would make the argument that if Shane Leckler doesn't get in the Hall of Fame, you're essentially saying a punter can't get in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, Leckler's probably in for a punter, I guess. Yeah, he absolutely is in for a punter. I mean, Leckler is, I think, easily the best punter of his generation, and he's a guy whose generation spanned you know quite a while so i'd be pretty shocked if like i say if you're not putting shane leckler in the, in the hall of fame it's because you believe no specialist belongs in the hall of fame all right we'll get into uh some of the other non-first-year finalists but first our newest sponsors revolutionizing the world of sports betting and fan engagement by making sports fandom profitable that company is symbol the stock market for sports teams symbol was a pff sponsor last year and they're back for this football season symbol lets you trade pro and college teams like stocks and even earn cash dividend payouts when your teams win. Symbol takes the thrill of sports betting and turned it into the stock market to give you a platform where you can buy and sell sports teams 
and profit from your sports knowledge. So download the, the Symbol mobile app for iOS by searching S-I-M-B-U-L-L in the App Store. Use the code FOOTBALL to receive a free team stock valued up to $150 upon signing up. Whether you want to invest in an up-and-coming team like the Chargers, the GOAT in Tom Brady and the Bucks, or the new top dog in the Buffalo Bills, Symbol allows you to buy and sell team stocks based off who you think is on the rise street. <clears throat> I get the... You okay? I'm going to power through. Mm. Create a free account. Enter code FOOTBALL to get a free stock valued up to $150 and start making money off your sports knowledge right now. S-I-M-B-U-L-L. Symbol. Well done. Let me take a sip while you talk about the next guys. Yeah, I just wanted to list the guys that are finalists from the 2022, from 2022, renominated for next year. So essentially guys that were first time eligible last year, didn't make the cut, and are back up again this year, just to put some context into the guys we've just been talking about. So Jared Allen was first year eligible last season. Jared Allen versus Dwight Freeney is a good discussion, I think. Um, Allen didn't get in. Uh, Willie Anderson was first time eligible last year, really? Uh, Why do I always feel like he was older? Yeah, we have PFF data on him. Like he, I know, I guess I just played in that era. Um, Rondé Barber. I think Willie played with like um, Munoz. You know, it's like oh, Willie was with uh, Chris and Munoz. Rondé Barber, um, arguably the best slot corner of all time. Devin Hester, the best return man of all time, not kick returner, return man. Yeah. Torrey Holt, Andre Johnson, Reggie Wayne, all first-year eligible last year. Zach Thomas and Patrick Willis. And so Patrick Willis didn't get in last year. Yeah. And DeMarcus Ware. Again, DeMarcus Ware, Jared Allen, uh, Dwight Freeney. Oh, man, this is tough. Isn't it? Um, it seems easy I when think you don't Freeney, have the context. But then when you see, like, oh, Patrick Willis didn't get in first shot. Freeney is perceived as better than Jared Allen in part because he has a Super Bowl and played for the Colts with Peyton Manning. And also because his sort of his his one trick was better. Yeah. Like Freeney's but he was also spin. like pure speed rusher. Yeah. Like, so he could beat he would beat to the outside, Freeney, and have that killer spin move. Allen was just good in one. Right? Won a lot as a pass rusher. Yeah. Jared Allen. All right, that's what I mean. He didn't have the sort of the signature move. Yeah. You know, that would that would go, oh wow, that's just unstoppable. Um, so Jared Allen, maybe. He's close. If I put in Harrison and Freeney, I probably have to put in Jared Allen. Yeah, I mean, Allen. I don't we, I don't think we need to litigate those ones. I just think it's oh. worth listing them as context for the guys that we're turning we, down. You know, these are the guys that didn't get in a year ago. We, Willie Anderson, just because I'm close to some people that are doing some research that are put, making the case for Willie Anderson. And part of the case is the bias against the right tackle. Mm. So I would I appreciate Willie maybe stepping up for right tackles everywhere here. Um, Neil was telling me the other day, back in the day when they were voting for all pro, it was really just all two left tackles. Yeah. And the only time right tackles made it is when their team had like a crazy record. Yeah. Um, it was whoever the Bears starter was in like 01 made all pro. And then the great Leon Searcy, the year the Jaguars go 14-2 and two in 99. Right. The great Leon Searcy. I mean, he was right up there with Baselli. Um, so Willie Anderson got screwed when it came to all of those uh, awards because he was a right tackle. Yeah, the Bengals at one point, remember, they had, Le- uh, they had Levi Jones at left tackle, Willie Anderson at right tackle, then they drafted Whitworth and put him at guard. Yeah, that was pretty good. It's a pretty good group. All right, what are we doing here? Who so else? That's we our got? Hall of Fame discussion. Okay. Um, are we finishing that? Oh, we're not going to go no, through I these guys? No, no, as I say, we're, that, that was just for context. What do you do with those receivers, though? Well, this is the problem. Tory that- Holt, Andre Johnson, and Reggie Wayne. If one goes in, they all. I, I, is Andre Johnson the best out of that group? Yes. 
But Boom. Torrey Holt's consistency was Torrey incredible. Torrey Holt's first six seasons was record-setting. And remember, this is a, an NFL with, you know, Jerry Rice sets all the records and then Randy Moss sets all the records. Like, Torrey Holt's first six years were nuts. Reggie Wayne and Marvin Harrison. I mean, Peyton was awesome, but he had those two guys for the majority of his career. Was Wayne that much worse than Marvin Harrison? No, well, the other problem is they just put Isaac Bruce in. So you've already sort of let... I don't want to say let the stand, you know what I mean? But, like, Isaac Bruce is now your standard. Yeah. So if Isaac Bruce gets in, you could make a pretty compelling argument that all three of those guys belong. For a lot of receivers, though. And that's a lot of receivers. And that's the problem with this whole thing is we went from, oh, there's this giant backlog of receivers and a guy like Chris Carter, who retired essentially second on every list, couldn't get in. And now we've gone from that to, well, we're letting Isaac Bruce in, who was, you know, really good. But all of a sudden, you can draw a pretty strong parallel between Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt, Andre Johnson, Reggie Wayne, Steve Smith. There's only going to be more of these guys over the next few years because the numbers have gone through the roof. And now all of a sudden, we're going to have like a Hall of Fame that just has a wing for wide receivers because there's a million of them. It's easier to accumulate numbers, too. That's what I mean. It is, And it's hard to play that mental game of, yeah, Torrey Holt's numbers were incredible, but it was at the start of the offensive explosion. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, like comparing across eras is always a nightmare, and it's yeah. only going to get harder for receivers. Like, how do you compare Torrey Holt's numbers to like an Art Monk? Three dome receivers, too. Also true, dome receivers. Art Monk, stud. Yeah, but like, how yeah. do you how do you fairly contrast and compare what Art Monk did versus what Torrey Holt did? No, you can't. You can't exactly, and yet that's the that's even when you the try job. to something it plays in your head. Right, and let, that's that's literally the the task that they've set in this. All right, where to? What else do you want to cover here? Well, so we have two choices. Time's dragging a little. We can we covered Monday Night Football on the PFF NFL Daily. Two blowouts. I think we covered it on yeah. the Daily. So the only question is, you know, do we want to take a stab at essentially just talking about how absurd the Bills look right now and prohibitive Super Bowl favorites and all that kind of stuff? Or just jump straight into the explain the PFF grade segment? I mean, just to touch on the Bills quickly. They do look incredible. Um, they look like so offensively they had games last year where um, they they did look unstoppable they didn't have that level of consistency mm-hmm. last year they certainly I mean they scored six against the Jaguars that one that one game but they had games where they looked unstoppable but we're now at a stretch of the Bills last year into this year unstoppable against the Patriots in the playoffs against the Chiefs in the playoffs even though they lost week one against the Rams pretty much unstoppable other than like a couple yeah. fluke interceptions and, from Josh Allen and then week two 41 points against the Titans and just think of the teams they're beating I mean their first two like they lost to Pittsburgh week one last year this season week one was against the defending Super Bowl champions and week two was against the number one seed from the AFC a year ago now okay Tennessee doesn't look like that team right now but I still think they got made to look an awful lot worse than they are against the Bills who aren't just beating people but are just destroying them like so far teams are hanging tough for a couple of quarters and then buffalo just like kicks into an extra gear that these other teams don't have and by the end of the game it's like wow where the how did that score get so out of control i mean so that is just super team type of ability right where it's like the longer the game goes the better we are we're going to pull away the more football is played where the buffalo bills we're going to drop the hammer and and win so Mm -hmm. um that's what they feel like right now so credit the bills they're looking great done okay 
So explain the PFF grade. I think this is a good thing we should do every Wednesday where there is a, you know, PFF grades come out Monday morning-ish, Monday 10 a.m. type of type of time, flood, or comes out in drips and draps through that period of time. And every week there are some grades that, you know, don't necessarily make the most immediate intuitive sense based off the box score numbers or what people saw on the highlights and all those kinds of things. I think it's a good opportunity for us to pick one each week and explain a little bit why the grade is different to what you imagine it should be. We'll go Aiden Hutchinson. Yeah, we'll start with Aiden Hutchinson. We'll do okay. two this week because we didn't do one the first okay. week. So Aiden Hutchinson for the Detroit Lions. Three sacks in the first half, Steve. I saw them on the highlights. Red zone made a big deal of it. Why is his grade not great? So a few reasons. Um, we're grading every single play. The first part is just the volume. Uh, Aiden Hutchinson rushed the passer 46 times. Doesn't take away from the fact that he had three sacks, um, but a little insight into the PFF grading. The We will give more credit to the quality of the win than we will the tick box of whether or not you had a sack on the play. So essentially, you can earn a higher grade if you beat the left tackle quickly in, say, two seconds, 2.2 seconds. You win a one-on-one matchup quickly. You're going to get a higher grade than a play where the quarterback holds the ball, you didn't win, and then you do, you do make a nice play, and you have a cleanup sack after four seconds, five seconds, whatever it is. So two of those three sacks were cleanup. Like, good job, Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. High effort plays, whatever you want to say. I mean, this is like my Bud Dupree argument all the time. Bud Dupree is really good in cleanup situations. He plays hard. He, he finishes plays. Um, but the dominant one-on-one win is not only more valuable because it relies less on other people to do stuff, but it's also just harder to do consistently. In other words, for Aiden Hutchinson to have those three sacks, good plays. He needed Carson Wentz to hold the ball or his other yeah. teammates to get a pressure or whatever. Like, so you're, you're, it's less impressive in a grading sense because other stuff had to happen, whereas winning one-on-one in two seconds, that's all you. It's more impressive, it's more consistent, and it's more valuable in the long run. Yeah, and the other sort of strand of logic there is that once you've beaten the blocker, what happens after that is kind of, it's not random, but it's, it's not in your control. Your con- right. What is in your control is, I go one-on-one against an offensive tackle and I win or lose. And then from the point that that has happened, whether or not the quarterback gets rid of the ball, whether the quarterback is Daniel Jones and just stares into the distance while the sack bears down on him, like all of these things are not within your control. And they determine whether it's a sack, whether it's a pressure, or whether it's nothing at all. Because if the ball's gone and he was looking over there, he didn't even know you beat him. Right. So it's literally nothing. It's not even a pressure. So, I'm just using that as an example. From a PFF grading standpoint, Aiden Hutchinson beats the left tackle in two seconds. He gets a grade for that. Whether the quarterback double clutches and gets sacked or gets rid of the ball and it's only a hurry or it kind of gets rid of the ball and it becomes a hit it's essentially going to be the same exact grade for Aiden Hutchinson he did the same amount of work yeah the difference in his stats sack hit versus hurry was all determined by the receiver the coverage and the quarterback other stuff so to sum that all up Aiden Hutchinson on 46 pass rushes which is a lot he had six pressures it's not a bad number two of those pressures were unblocked so something scheme-based. Um, and two of those three sacks were of the cleanup variety. His overall pass rush win rate was only 8.7%. That is well below average for a pass rusher. And it was on 46 snaps. So that explains Aiden Hutchinson with a 57.3 pass rush grade. 
despite having three sacks. To give you an indication of how large a number that is in terms of pass rushing opportunities, Nick Bosa, Rashawn Gary, and Von Miller all have fewer than that in two games. Yeah, that's a that's another way of another great way of putting it. And in other, for other. I mean, it's if you're just looking at a guy's sack totals, it'd almost be like saying this quarterback had 20 completions. That's really good. When you don't know if he attempted 40 passes or 30 passes, yeah. right? We don't we don't always think about opportunities when we hear sack totals because it, we just don't see the denominator all the time like we do in other stats. The last point and the future upcoming guest, Joe Thomas, Brown's legend, uh, you know, made the point of hey a lot of the sacks in the NFL are, are hustle plays. You know, you should get credit for those because these are important plays and they are valuable once you sack the quarterback. All true. And, you know, he does get credit for that. We we're do not, give credit, we're right? We're not penalizing him. He's not getting downgraded because they were cleanup plays. He is getting a better grade than if he did nothing on the play. Or, you know, so he is getting credit for that hustle play and for finishing those plays and for staying in it and hanging tight and getting the sack at the end of it. We are just saying that it is a qualitatively worse uh, pass rushing play than you know those elite pass rushes where you whoop a guy in two seconds and are bearing down the quarterback irrespective of what happens after that all right so move on to the next one explain the grade Lamar Jackson uh, Baltimore Ravens put up a ton of points put up a ton of yards Lamar had his big you know whatever that however many yard run that was um, touchdown run but Lamar's grade wasn't great Justify yourself, Stephen. We're talking about the rushing grade in particular? Oh, the overall? I mean, even with the overall grade, um, I think he got a minus two on one of the worst passes of the week. Um, So Lamar's passing grade was going to be fine, was going to be very good, until in that Dolphins comeback, legendary comeback, Lamar tried to become a highlight in that thing by throwing a pick six to Xavier Howard. So that's a part of it, right? So they're down, they're up at a score with about five minutes left in the game. The Dolphins very easily could have tied it up on a pick six that Lamar left inside in crunch time. So from a passing grade standpoint, that was that. Um, from a run grade perspective, he did have the 79 yarder, got proper credit for that. Um, I think admittedly a challenge in the rushing grades though, is parsing out someone like Lamar with his special rushing ability versus say like the average quarterback lamar running for a 79 yard touchdown i would say is something if it was a wide open hole but his speed and his breakaway ability five guys turn that into a touchdown in the nfl yeah and at the same time like daniel jones has 70 70 plus yard touchdowns if they're left wide open and he got he got an elite grade for that individual play you know so the the he did and the problem is you look well the rest of his rushing grades or the rest of his rushing attempts you look at the other ones, and it's very difficult to find another sort of definitive positive grade from those other rushes relative to what you would give anybody else. You know, like if you're saying, yeah. okay, this plays a positive grade, that's fine, but then you're then you're boosting an awful lot of runs in the NFL would be With, the point, which isn't helping him. And the critical thing that's dinging that grade is he fumbled. Yeah, so we'll talk about the fumble in a second. I just want to get to like the long run because um, this is what a lot of times in our grading, here's what happens. We're grading... Um, so people are so used to yards triggering something in their minds to think more is better, right? Which, it, of course, it is, like in the football game. But if Lamar runs that ball at, say, the Dolphins' 40, and it becomes a 40-yard touchdown, it's 
it's only slightly less impressive than the 79 yarder now the 79 yarder is impressive because he did have some dolphins tracking him down and in only lamar is going to run away from those guys or a handful of guys are going to run away from them um and like i said it got the proper grade but a lot of times a quarterback throws a great deep pass it's 20 yards in the air and a guy runs it and it's just for a 20 yard touchdown other times it's the same pass and then the receiver runs for 40 more yards becomes a 60 yarder it's the same exact pass um, in this particular case, the run is a little bit different, but the fact that it was so deep into the Ravens' territory becomes a 79-yarder. He was going to break away no matter what, so it just adds to yeah, the I yardage mean, total. The bottom line is he sort of indiv- individually accounted for a rushing touchdown that, yeah. let's say, wouldn't have been there otherwise. So right? the other plays that are in there, he got stuffed on the goal line. So these are plays where he didn't earn positives, that he had opportunities to, to earn positives. He got stuffed on the goal line. He got stuffed on fourth and one right those are those are plays where he ran and didn't add value there um and then there's the fumble right so a fumble on nine carries right a fumble we're going to grade that poorly right that's a that's as bad as you can get for a grade generally he fumbled once and only on nine carries so we're talking about one of the lowest grades you can get out of only nine plays and pff grades that uh, that essentially offsets yeah the... that's the thing i mean i was going to make the point that you know people look a lot of the times at quarterbacks in terms of touchdowns versus interceptions you know the ratio and generally okay we do it differently you know we're looking at actually the the quality of the play not necessarily the result it had but the point being if you had a quarterback that had one touchdown even if that touchdown was incredible but he offset it with one interception you would say well that's not great you know, yeah. it's, it's not a good day. If Lamar has that one touchdown that he created out of nothing, essentially, in the run game, but then offset it with a fumble, it's not that great a day. It, and PFF it, grading is going to treat the fumble the same whether or not they lost it because right. it's random, essentially. When you put the ball on the ground, you have no control outside of recovering it yourself whether or not that ball is turned over or not. It's, it's a random bounce of the ball that can cost you the turnover, and turnovers are huge. Here's the thing with the fumble. It wasn't a run. So <clears throat> it goes to his rushing grade because has to go somewhere. it was a drop snap yeah. on a presumed handoff. It was on fourth and one at the goal line or uh, deep into Dolphins territory here. So... That ended up being a big play. The Ravens recovered, but it didn't matter. It was a turnover on downs. We're not necessarily valuing the, putting the value of the play in there or whatever, but a fumble is bad. We don't know if you're going to recover it. Um, a dropped snap, it has to go somewhere from a facet standpoint, so it's going to go into the grade. Like Tom Brady dropped a snap as well, so his rushing grade was like a 30 or something because that was his only rushing attempt, right? That was his only play. Mm-hmm. Um, not every fumble is the quarterback's fault, the way we do it too, strip sacks, things like that. This was a missed snap where we clearly downgraded Yeah, I mean, Lamar to give Jackson. you an indication, his fumble grade was 29, but his rushing grade was like double that because, yeah. you know, he had a bunch of good he – had, he had the run that turned a touchdown into – you know, turned nothing into a touchdown. That so that's where, that. that's where context comes yeah. in. Yeah, so yep. essentially, I mean, Lamar is, is effectively being dinged for two extremely bad plays. A fumble, which is a effectively a turnover in quality, whether or not it results in one on the stat sheet – and then what should have been a pick six if Xavier Howard, a corner with one of some of the best hands in the NFL, didn't drop it. And other than that, he played really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, 
here's the other thing too he only dropped back 34 times so like one really bad turnover worthy play on a low volume passing attempt one bad fumble on a low volume running game it's gonna affect your grades yeah i mean and and with the you know if you're sort of arguing that hey the run was so special it should have dragged it all up anyway you kind of have to ask the question well how how good a grade can that one play possibly get in order to drag this further up you know we gave it a really really good grade yeah but it's one run look i could make i can see that argument right lamar might be the only one who can have a 79 yard run in the nfl and maybe you have to break the scale for him and say no one else could do that um but even even if you said that you know my point would be let's say instead of the sort of run forwards and you debate how hard or not it was to stay away from the trailing corners or whatever let's say a guy did something truly ridiculous but it was one play he's in his own five yard line it's a barry sanders run right he makes 17 different people miss over the course of the next 85 yards you know and ends up trotting into the goal line it's a touchdown there's nobody in the history of the game that can do that. It's, it's a one-off. It'll never happen again. It will go down as one of the greatest plays in the history of humanity. It's still just six points. It's one play. Right. Right. You can't. So it's you, like how, you don't get 12 points right, for it. Right. That's my point. Like, yeah. how, how good a grade can you give that in order to come out of the end? Like, if he did that, but every other play he had, you know, was an average or nothing play. Like, what can you say? At the end of the game, when you're analyzing that, what do you say that guy did that game? Yeah. Well, he came out with one of the greatest plays we'll ever see. But that was it. Like, that's all he did. So that's, you know, I don't want to make, say that that is exactly what, what's happened with Lamar. But my point being, you can only grade one play so high, you know, because yeah. it is ultimately only ending up in six points. So we're doing our best here to explain it, give you some insight into, uh, into the grading process, where the perspective is, this what is we like, what we weigh, what we don't weigh, that type of stuff. Um, I'm sure somebody's not going to be happy with the uh, explanation. Oh, but, most uh, people won't be, I'm sure. But oh. anyway, this is a good place for the emails. If you, every week, you know, Monday, Tuesday, if you see a grade and you don't understand why it's where it is, shoot us the guy you want us to talk about and we'll hit it on the Wednesday show. NFL podcast at pff.com. That will be a weekly Wednesday segment. All right. All that said, we'll get to Joe Thomas. Yeah. Do you think we're going to ask him? Is he going to, does he feel like he's a Hall of Famer? I wonder. I don't know. We'll have to ask him. Okay. All right. Well, let's get to Joe Thomas and preview a little Thursday night football. All right. Welcome in and welcome back to Joe Thomas, the future Hall of Famer. We'll see. We'll see if he thinks he's a Hall of Famer. I, I thought you, are you going to, you're going to let him know, you know, three-time Hall of Famer over there. I am a three-time, soon to be three-time Hall of Famer. Uh-huh. But um, Joe, how many Hall of Fames are you in so far? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Uh, that's the joke in my family that I've been inducted to all the Hall of Fames that don't matter as of this point. But uh, we got a big one that potentially could be coming up next summer. All right. So so still, yeah. It sounds like he still has your beat. He probably has a bunch. Yeah, he's talking him down, but he still sounds like he's got your three beat. He, he can't even count. He's not in the PFF Hall of Fame. What are your three? I'm very curious. Uh, so PFF, <laughs> we have a Hall of Fame. Is that like on your W-9 when you fill it out to become an employee? For no, you got to earn that. Yeah. Uh, would you like to pay five extra dollars to be in the PFF Hall of Fame? I think we should do that, though. We I should. like your thinking. Yeah, check that box. So, uh, yeah, that well-earned okay. PFF. Good start. I'm in uh, North Reading High School Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. Oh, and okay. then the UMass Lowell Hall of Fame <laughs> with oh. my teammates from 2001 and 2002. 
So sharing, mm. sharing the glory with them in a few weeks. Nice here. work. Anyway. I mean, it's not often you get a great guest like John and he immediately feels jealous of your accomplishments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. I don't, don't want to embarrass our guest, but Joe is, he is up for the Real Hall of Fame next year. Yeah. Uh, we did just discuss this on the podcast, Joe. We would put you in right mm-hmm. away. Would you put yourself in? Do you think you've earned it? <laughs> you know, I don't think it's ever fair to discuss your own merits for the Hall of Fame. I think I've put together uh, a, a good resume. I think it stacks up, but there's a lot of great potential Hall of Famers that are going to be uh, voted in in this class. And it would just be an honor to be put in with some of those great names that are out there, like the Darrell Rivas, the Dwight Freeney, those type of guys. He's got a teleprompter over there, doesn't he? I know, he's good at this, right? Yeah. That's right. You can tell he's, he's transitioned in the media seamlessly. We've gone from 10,000 straight snaps in the NFL to now we just got smooth, you know, polished answers, you know, I don't, rejecting <laughs> the premise of your question. This guy's a master. Well done, well done. Um, I was curious, Joe, with the Hall of Fame stuff, the Browns Legends thing, how old are your kids? Like, is this actually mm-hmm. relevant to you being like, you see, Daddy Daddy was actually good at this stuff back when he was playing, you know? Well, that's why this stuff is cool to me right now is because my kids have nearly no recollection of me playing in the NFL whatsoever. My oldest daughter is nine, and she's the only one that even remembers being in a stadium when I was playing. But unfortunately, her her only memory of me being in the stadium and playing was her sitting on the floor of First Energy Stadium eating peanuts that were being fed to her (laughs) by my mom. And so as far as me being in a jersey, there's nothing so to be able to go out like I did last weekend for the Browns Legends Club and be able to put on a 73 jersey and my kids see me and I actually have the opportunity to say, see, I wasn't lying. I actually played <laughs> for the Browns a few years ago. You may not remember it, but people in the stands still might remember that little stretch that we had at the end where I won one game in two years. <laughs> it was such a big moment in their life. Well, we <laughs> appreciate your playing career. So congrats on being a Browns legend. And we do want to have you, uh, we wanted you to hear here to preview the Brown Steelers game Thursday night football um, two AFC North teams one and one I want to discuss the the matchup in general Pittsburgh such mm-hmm. great history and all that stuff what yeah. was it like going up against the Steelers and what are some of the different challenges that a Mike Tomlin coach team might bring to the table versus some others well it's always a great battle between the Browns and the Steelers even though the Browns have been on the losing end of most of those battles since they came back in 99 but I think because of the history that these teams have, because you play each other twice every year, um, it's always seems to be a little bit closer than maybe most people expect. Even when I was there, we weren't very good. We still played the Steelers pretty tough a lot of times. Um, And I think playing against a Mike Tomlin coach team brings a lot of challenges because he have, he's always gotten the most out of his guys. He's always had a disciplined team. And as a defensive-minded head coach, I played for a bunch of them. A lot of times what you see is, they, they don't like going into the game with any question marks about defenses or even on the offensive side of the ball. If they had something in practice that they didn't love, they just threw it out because they would rather have guys with a simplified game plan that they know exactly what they're supposed to do so that they can just cut it loose on Sundays and they can play fast, or in this case, Thursday night. And so what you got a lot of times was a very fundamentally sound defense that you were going against. They had every gap covered. They knew for every single shift in motion you had, their adjustment, they were all on the same page. You weren't going to get anything easy from them. You are going to have to fight them the entire way. We always said against the Steelers, you're going to have to go the long, hard way because they're not giving up any easy throws over their head. Dick LeBeau was their defensive coordinator for pretty much my entire time when I was there. And he always played a bunch of cover three where he was not letting anybody over the top. He was going to give up every inch in the run game grudgingly. 
And you really had to be perfect to be able to take that ball and go all the way down the field and score a touchdown. What do you make of this year's version of each team's offensive line? Because they've kind of come from different places over the last couple of years. The Browns have had one of the best offensive lines in the game. Um, Pittsburgh's offensive line, it's always it's graded badly for us, but they've been able to protect it pretty well by Roethlisberger, you know, having the fastest average time to throw in the NFL. It looks fairly similar to that this year in terms of quick passes, horizontal stuff. They're not stressing those guys out. So what do you think of those two units um, as a, as a former offensive lineman, Joe? Sure. Well, I'm a big fan of the Browns offensive line. I think they've been playing really well this season and they've been in the top five on offensive line ratings for the last three years, really since Kevin Stefanski got there because across the board, they really don't have weaknesses and they've got the two best guards in the NFL. And when you have great running backs in the backfield, like Chubb and Hunt, you're able to utilize what you do really well which this season and in the last couple seasons has been getting your guards on the perimeter allowing them to show their athleticism letting them run getting outside blocking linebackers and safeties in space and then getting chubb and hunt with a full head of steam with their feet to the line of scrimmage to be able to kind of pick a hole and then to turn whatever is blocked for into plus four beyond that. So a lot of times, if you got to play block for two, Chubb, Hunt, those guys are going to get you six because they're so tough to tackle. They're always going to at least make the first guy miss or they're going to slow him down where they're going to then be able to fall forward for two, three, four more yards and always put you ahead of the sticks so that you're never stuck in a second and long situation after a first down run. And as an offensive coordinator, that does a lot for you because you have confidence being able to dial up those runs every single week because you know that you're never going to get stuck in a second and long and put Jacoby Brissett or whoever is back there, a quarterback in a very difficult situation on second and third down. And I think that's one of the things that you've seen in the first couple of weeks of the season already from the Browns offensive line is they're wearing teams out by the second half because of the volume of runs that they're calling, but also what they're doing up front, making your second and third level guys run and try to tackle these big running backs that they have in the backfield. When, when you said the best two guards in the NFL, you mean as a duo rather than number one and number two, right? Because if we're... I'm, I'm saying their duo is the okay, best there we in go. the NFL. It's always difficult when you're saying who is the best, who's the second best at I, any position, right? I was just... Because look, really, it's more tiers. And that's I, I think that's kind of how you see yeah. the positions. Like, I see my quarterbacks in tiers. I see a tier one, tier two, tier three. It's not really fair to say who's the best because you know what? Week in and week out, it's probably going to be different. Who's that best quarterback this week versus who's the best quarterback next week. And that's the same thing with guards. I'd take Wyatt Teller and Joel Batonio in my top five, no matter what the list is for offensive guards in the NFL. Now who's number one, who's two, three, four. Eh, I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that up to you guys. You said he was seasoned in the media. He doesn't know. Yeah. I mean, this is – our editors won't let us I, – I, I think in tears like you, Joe. I think in tears because it does make sense. The editors want 1 to 32 or 1 to That's 64. Right. You know, you have to rank them, you know? I was just like, look, if we're going to put Wyatt Teller ahead of Zach Martin, we're going to have to put some sort of disclaimer across Joe's <laughs> appearance, you know, with the Browns <laughs> fandom here. Um, how, does, how does Nick Chubb – can you win with a run-first attack in today's NFL, right? The, the – it's not just the passing games are exploding. It's the, the NFL wants pass games to explode. Every new rule is like, all right, not only protect the quarterback, but make it easier. This year, they want to focus on illegal contact, you know, because illegal mm -hmm. contact wasn't just, it just wasn't getting called enough the last couple of years. We need some five-yard automatic first downs for the passing attack on third and 19, right? We just need that in today's NFL. 
So a run, a run first attack, is that enough to say make a playoff run in today's NFL? It's really tough, and that's why you see teams across the league putting so many of their eggs in that quarterback basket. That's why the Browns went out and, in spite of a lot of criticism, decided to go with Deshaun Watson and trade for him this offseason because you understand if you want to be consistent for the long term, you got to have that elite tier one franchise quarterback because it's so hard to keep together a rushing attack for a decade because in order to have a good rushing attack you have to have five good offensive linemen you got to have at least one maybe two tight ends that can block you got to have a receiver that's willing to block you got to have a quarterback that's good at the run fakes that's good at being able to get the football to his running back in different situations, hold that backside defensive end in a lot of those boots, which sometimes it's, it sounds easy, but there's a lot of quarterbacks that just don't commit to it because they don't even think about it. Hey, I hand it off and then I'm out of here. Right. But a lot of times, especially those outside zones, like having a quarterback that can hold that backside guy. So he's not crashing down hard on the backside of the line of scrimmage to take away some of those cutbacks. That makes a big deal and a big difference in a lot of those runs. Same thing with a quarterback that can run some of those RPO type things and kind of make uh, it a little bit more of a weapon in the running game. But I will say for the Browns, the reason that their running game is working and has worked uh, is because of Nick Chubb's ability to hit the home run. And that's typically where the difference between a running and a passing attack is the greatest is your ability to hit the home run, which as we saw last week, when Browns played the jets, the home run was the difference in that game. The Browns crushed the jets in every aspect of the game, except for big plays when it mattered. And if you're not able to dial up at least two or three big plays in a game, it's really hard to win. I don't care who you play against, but the Browns can do that in their running game because Nick Chubb is one of the fastest running backs in the NFL and he can get outside and he can break off 40, 50, 60 yard game changing type runs where most running backs in the NFL are just not fast enough to run beyond an NFL defense. So along those lines, like how does how does a quarterback like Jacoby Brissett specifically change the the job, change the responsibilities of offensive linemen? You know, how does he affect that dynamic? Well, Jacoby's not much of a running quarterback. He's a he's a decent athlete, but he's not exactly Deshaun Watson when it comes to ability to get out of the pocket and make you pay with his legs. And the same thing when he's in the pocket. I thought in week two, he showed a lot of improvement over week one with just his calmness with his feet. He he wasn't getting happy feet. He was going through his progressions. His feet were leading him to his throws, and then his throws were a lot more accurate. And I think when you have that type of quarterback as an offensive lineman, it allows the defensive line to be a little bit more creative with their pass rushes. It allows the defensive line to get outside of their pass rush lanes a little bit more because they're not quite as worried about a quarterback who's going to find when you leave your pass rush lane and he's not going to make you pay as much with his legs. I guarantee if when Deshaun Watson comes back, those defenses are going to be a lot more measured in their pass rushes. It's going to be much more about collapsing and constricting the pocket than it is, hey, I got to just beat this guy, and if I can get to that spot, I can get a sack. So it makes it a lot harder when you don't have a quarterback that's going to leave that spot all that often, and he doesn't make defensive linemen pay when they take a risky pass rush move, and maybe they're supposed to have the outside gap, but they're going to give you the up and under. They're going to give you the spin move and take that inside because they feel like, hey, as long as I win, 
I'm going to be able to get the sack in the backfield, and that quarterback will never break contain and never get outside the defense when all my defensive backs have their heads turned and are running down the field with my receivers because I just don't have to worry about that with this quarterback. And so playing for a quarterback that is willing to run definitely makes it a lot easier because you're getting, let's say, maybe 90 or 95% of the pass rush that you normally would when you have just a pocket passer who's going to stand in one spot. One of the numbers we use to kind of help define um, how difficult it is, in addition to what you're saying, you know, for an offensive lineman to block is just time in pocket, time to throw, yep. whatever. And Jacoby's definitely on the lower end or the higher end, right? 2.9 seconds on average. It's not every one, but, you know, you've got some extended plays here and there, but it's a lot longer to hold your block, right? On the other side, Pittsburgh is getting rid of the ball extremely quickly, not as quickly as last year, but Big Ben last year had the quickest time to release Mitch Trubisky in this offense in Pittsburgh very quick getting rid of the ball a lot of underneath stuff so far um, is that enough to neutralize say a Miles Garrett I know Jadavian Clowney's out on the other side but how does Pittsburgh handle Miles Garrett will the quick passing game affect that how does that affect how you would block too as an offensive lineman that's going to be a really fun cat and mouse game to watch uh, in this game on Thursday night because what you saw last week against the Jets with the Browns' defensive secondary is they were having a lot of communication issues. Same thing in week one. So as you guys know, when you have communication issues in the secondary based on shifts and formations and the coverages that you're trying to get to because it's the best for this personnel grouping with this motion and this shift, maybe aren't being communicated. And then you guys, you have guys on different pages, which leads to huge busts and huge plays. And so you can't have that. So what do you do? You go to the simplest defense ever. It's man coverage, right? And a lot of times what you're going to see is, I think this weekend, or excuse me, a lot of times I think what you'll see is when teams have a hard time communicating different coverages, they just go to man because it's easier. You don't have to communicate as much. And all you have to worry about is communicating the switches or a lot of the underneath rub type stuff. And so for the Browns to move forward to their Thursday game, if they do play a lot more man coverage and they are playing some of those defensive backs tighter to the line of scrimmage, I think it has the ability to take away maybe some of those quicker throws uh, by the Steelers. And also it gives the defensive line the ability to be able to think about, all right, this ball is going to come out. So I need to make sure that I'm watching the quarterbacks drop and I'm getting my hands up to try to take away some of those quick throwing lanes that the Steelers are going to try to be able to exploit uh, with Mitchell Trubisky to try to get the ball out of their hands so that the pass rush is not as much of an issue when you do have an offensive line that could be a little bit shaky trying to block Miles Garrett. All right, Joe, we'll get you out of here on this. We like our guests to uh, you know offer a little prediction for the game mm. every single week. So I assume based off you know your cap and your browns legend status and <laughs> captain of the dog pound over there that you're going browns my question is how big would the line need to be before you mm. were saying you know what the steelers are actually going to cover this so i was about to take the browns by a billion and yeah, so to answer yeah. your question it would have to be 999 million 999 yeah. before i started thinking about taking the steelers okay. in this one because right. i love the browns to bounce back from <laughs> what was a gut-wrenching collapse against the jets to put their best performance of the season on film on thursday night football so i think we can safely put joe down for taking the browns let's say joe <laughs> joe, joe took Joe takes the Browns there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the poor Browns. Is everybody okay in Cleveland after that? Like the, the broadcast was doing montages on the last time they were two and zero, and the price of gas, and Jurassic Park was in the theaters, and all this stuff. Are they okay after Sunday? 
I think there's so many people that are still in shock that were in disbelief. Like myself, I was at the game and it was like when the game ended, You're like what I still was not able to accept what had happened because <laughs> five minutes before that I was with those announcers. I was celebrating the two and O start. One of my friends came to see me towards the end of the game. And we were talking about what a great game it was, how it was fun to watch. Like the Browns played flawless football. They were so much better improved. Jacoby Brissett was so calm in the pocket. We found a way to win with him and, the running game continues to impress, even though everybody's doing everything they can from a defensive standpoint to try to shut down Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. And all of a sudden, literally everything that's improbable that needed to happen in order for you to lose happened in succession. It's almost like when we were talking about the running game earlier on in this uh, podcast, the hard thing about running the ball is because in order to even get four yards, you have to have all five offensive linemen do the right thing. You have to have the running back do the right thing. You have to have a tight end do the right thing. You have to have the receivers do the right thing. So you have to you have to win like a seven or eight team parlay in order to get a successful four-yard run. In the passing game, you only need two things to happen. A quarterback throw the ball to the guy that he should and a receiver to make a play on the ball. That's it. It's easy. Like So that's why it's impossible to lose a game the way that they did against the jets. Cause it was like a nine thing parlay and all those things were like one for 500 were the op options of, I'm not a better, as you can tell one out of 500 that those things were going to be able to happen. And all of them happened right in a row. And it was, a collapse that I'm not sure people in Cleveland are going to forget for a long time. Unless they beat the Steelers on Thursday, then nobody cares. Nice. They're two and one in first place in their division. The game ends and Joe's just standing there going, no, no, set it up again. Do oh, over. No, no, we're not, no. I'm, it's yeah. not, we're not ending it like this. We're going to set it up again. 30 seconds left and we're going to win it this time. I'm not having this. I, I don't know if it's better or worse in the locker room, but you have to bounce back almost immediately for Thursday night football. Put that in the rearview mirror and Thursday night football. Browns favored by four and a half over the Steelers. Joe has the Steelers, uh, the Browns, Whoa. sorry, by Whoa. a billion. Yeah. By Browns a billion. by a billion. That's right. And uh, we'll hold you to that. Thank you to Browns legend, yes. future Hall of Famer, and maybe future uh, PFF favorite Hall of Famer uh, favorite favorite guest of the show. I think we've had so many requests since the last time you were on, Joe. Oh, yeah. man, that's awesome. I, I appreciate it. I love coming on with you guys. We have uh, the same brain as far as how we look at the game of football. And I can assure you that when I get my W-9 from PFF, <laughs> I'm checking that $5 box to be yeah. included in the PFF Hall of Fame. Let's uh, go. Joe's hating on my Hall of Fames. But yeah. Understood. A little bit. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, guys. All right. Special thanks to Joe Thomas for joining the show once again. Even though he's poking fun at, you know, my, uh, my honors. Always great to have him get his insight in there. I've been honored. Um, we got to make our picks too. Yeah, Steelers four and a half is four and a half points in Cleveland. Browns favored four and a half at home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is this the last we see of uh, Mitchell Trubisky? By the way, that's part of this, right? Isn't so? I, I've already looked this. So up. I'm looking at this like next right week. Now, I think is actually tough again. If they next were... uh, next week they've got oh they're the Bills yeah. at the Bills. No, what are they? No? Oh, the Jets. Okay, so this, yeah. So October 2nd, they have the Jets. This could be the perfect time, kind of like your first mini-buy, to get Kenny Pickett in there. It's, But it is Jets, Bills, Bucks, yeah. Dolphins, Eagles. Yeah. But and again, I know you're like, a big fan of uh, kid gloves. I just don't want to start them. Literally, kid gloves. I just don't want to, you know. Kenny Pickett. Your debut. Hands, Joe. Here's the Buffalo Bills. Kid it's very gloves. good. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Um, I, just, I just don't want to say, hey, Kenny congratulations on your starting debut it's against buffalo have fun you know okay week two fine 
like get him get his feet wet against the Jets and then go on your run of nightmares. It's home defenses. against the Jets. Then you go to Buffalo, home against the Bucks yeah. at Miami. I mean, it's not fun, but you know, you're going to have to you're going to have to deal with some tough defenses. It's not a good road. It is not a good road at all. So, <clears throat> this could be the end of Mitchell Trubisky unless he unless he balls out. Yeah. You know. It doesn't um, seem tremendously likely off what we've seen so far. I think he does. Really? Right, the Steelers covering the four hmm. and a half. And I've I've had it like at least three or four games right so far through two weeks. Uh, true. So yeah. uh, I'm feeling good. I get the Steelers. The Bra- Will the Browns be able to bounce back? This has to be difficult after that heartbreak coming back four days later. God, I don't like either side of this. I think the Browns are better. They're at home. But four and a half is quite a feels, lot. Feels like a big number. Yeah. So I think I'm going to lean that side, but I hate both sides of this bet. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. You're taking the Browns. Yes. Yeah, I don't like it either. Half. I wouldn't touch it. But you're taking the Steelers. But I'll take the Steelers because okay. we're obligated to make a pick. It's in the contract. True. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Joe Thomas, we already said he'll go to the Hall of Fame. Look he, at he is He's a pro. I feel like my resume is good. It's fun. Well, yeah. I'm honored to be there with Darrell Rivas. <laughs> it's a, it like immediately was just like, well, that's a shitty question. But if I have to answer it, I guess, you know, I've put up a reasonable resume so far. But I mean, that's what offensive line play is. It's, it's repetition and routine. And he's just... He's got it. He's got the answers. It is. I mean, I found generally that offensive linemen tend to be the most articulate players in terms of explaining the game, thought process behind things. You know, they have a very good understanding of what's happening generally from my experience. Tom, Joe Thomas and Andrew Whitworth, I think, are two, maybe the two smartest that I've heard talk about stuff. And, like, you can hear it. He says, I'm not just saying this because of this, but a lot of what he says is things we've said all the way along, including that analogy he made about, you know, the parlay that has to happen just for a successful run play. We need that. We need that part clipped. Yeah, which is a point that we've made for years, but actually, I don't think we have made for years. You know what I mean? It's something I know we used to say a lot to try and explain this whole passing is more efficient than running stuff and, and all this kind of st- thing and then we kind of went away from that and just haven't brought it up for a long time and, and I, I hadn't even thought of that until he made the exact same analogy there with his uh, description so yeah I, there's a reason people love Joe Thomas as that, a guest in, in the way he described it too for a four run four yard run to occur yeah everybody has to do their but job for a 10 yard pass only two guys need to be on the same yeah. page because yes the offensive linemen have to pass block but two guys can lose their block. If you get rid of it quick enough, yeah. right, you can still complete that pass. So um, anyway, thanks to Joe Thomas. We are trying to have more you know, guests for our Thursday night previews. He was perfect for the Browns-Steelers game. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's it for our Wednesday show. We'll be back again tomorrow previewing the rest of the week three NFL action. See you tomorrow.